Jeremiah chapter 3. I want to just read some uh, portions of it to you and then we'll work our way through it together. Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, and yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. And I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Skip down to verse 22. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. And down in chapter 4, verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. It's been called the main street of America, or the mother road. Route 66 was established in 1926. It stretched uh, 2,448 miles like a belt across the early 20th century of America. Long before GPS and Google Maps, this was the perfect way, the easiest way to give cross-country directions by car. Simply hop on the on-ramp at Chicago, Illinois, and stay on Route 66, and you will end up in L.A. Now, Route 66 has a certain nostalgia attached to it. Some of you may feel that nostalgia if you ever did a cross-country trip on Route 66. It's a memorial of a bygone era, and it's remembered, it's memorialized in many different ways. One of the most famous is in John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. It's the highway that ran through the 1930s Dust Bowl, Route 66. It's memorialized in the old Nat King Cole R&B standard, Get Your Kicks, on Route 66. Some of you may recall the old 1960s TV show that was titled by the same name, Route 66. And even more recently, in this generation, in the Disney Pixar film Cars, back in 2006, Route 66 was the highway that the small leftover town was found on. Sentimentally, and sadly, its glory days are behind it, I I discovered that actually back in 1985, it was officially removed from the U.S. highway system. July 27, 1985. The same year, by the way, that Doc Brown's DeLorean went back to the future. And I thought that was interesting. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about directions today um, and how easily we get off course. There was another Route 66 actually traveled a long time ago. 
Genesis 46, verse 26. It says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. So Jacob and sons traveling south out of Israel down into Egypt because of the famine, 66 of them went south. I find that really interesting. You might say, why does that matter? It's just the Bible giving us the number of people and it just happened to be 66. What does that really have to do with anything? Listen, the Bible gives direction, but the Bible also has a tendency to use specific numbers for specific reasons. To explain or to express concepts or ideas. Uh, the most obvious, you know, is the number seven. Seven. In fact, even non-Bible students, non-believers in Christ know that seven has a special ring to it. It's the number of completion. The number of completion. So, Bible students, what does the number six represent? Man. Very good. Six is the number of a man. I find it absolutely fascinating that Jacob and his descendants came down from Israel into Egypt as 66 people. It wasn't until they were combined with Joseph down in Egypt that the whole company would be 70. So you get from 6 to 7. But 6 always comes up short by itself. 6 is the number of man because 7 is the number of completeness. And 6 is just shy of 7. 6 doesn't quite get to 7. 6 is incomplete until it gets to the number 7, which is why it's the number of a man. And more specifically, Revelation 13, verse 18, uses that number. It says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now, we've talked about this before. There's nothing mysterious about 666. It's the mark of the beast. What is it? Is it your cell phone? What is the 666? And the Bible tells us 666 is simply the number of a man. The whole idea is that Antichrist will be a man. It's just going to be a person. Ultimately, Satan possessed, but he's a man. He is going to be born a man. He's going to raise up a man. He's going to try to rule the world as a man. 666. Well, why 666? Because he never gets to seven. He never reaches completeness never finds fulfillment and whether it's Jacob and his family headed south 66 of them or Antichrist 666 we are all on route 66 because we are incomplete as humanity we never find fulfillment in humanity in and of ourselves you won't find it you will not find satisfaction oh maybe in snippets here and there throughout life you might have one day for a few minutes where you're feeling kind of satisfied But that feeling eludes us, and that satisfaction eludes us, and all our efforts in this world never arrive based on humanity alone, unless our focus is the Lord, unless Jesus is where we are headed, unless He is the one directing us. What does this have to do with the passage before us today? Well, six times in the second message of the Lord to Jeremiah, six times he describes the people as faithless. He will use that word faithless six times. A word that describes man perfectly. People of the number six who are just not quite complete. God, on the other hand, is absolutely, perfectly, and 100% 
faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. What does that mean? It means faithfulness is God's nature. He can't not be faithful. He has to be faithful because that's His nature. It's every bit who He is. On the other hand, we can't not be faithless because that's more in keeping with our nature. The word you're going to note, and you'll see it there in verse 6, have you seen what faithless Israel did? That word faithless in the New American Standard Bible, in the Hebrew, it's mashubah. Mashubah. And it means turning away, or as the King James translates it, backsliding. Backsliding, faithless man. Here, the Lord calls to the fallen northern kingdom, backsliding Israel. That's the name. Backsliding Israel. And He's going to call the southern kingdom of Judah, backsliding sons. You have backsliding Israel in the north, backsliding sons in the south. There's a clear message for us here today. It's not just a hammer on the hard skull of Judah that God is doling out. These are not just the words of a flustered father, furiously foaming at the mouth, just angry, venting his anger, reduced to name-calling, backsliders, you know. God is very purposeful in what He's saying and I believe speaks directly to us. Because what we see in this passage, literally from verse 6 all the way through the end of chapter 3, is a father who has a passion for his sons and daughters and he's giving clear directions for those of us on Route 66. For those of us trapped in our humanity. For those of us feeling like we can never get to where we are supposed to go. God gives directions. Directions for what? Directions for how to get back to Him. How to get back to Him. Or what I'm calling this the root of return. But this message is for all of us. Don't Please don't too quickly dismiss it this morning. Uh, honey, this is for those backsliders, and they're probably not even here anyway. You know, They're home fixing food for the game. And, <laughs> and it doesn't apply to us faithful folks. We're not the backsliders here. Listen, just as the Lord here calls out to all of Israel and all of Judah, so I am absolutely convinced reading through this, He is speaking to all of us this morning. Some of you are are right in the hand of the Lord. You feel close to the Lord. You're in a good place with the Lord. Some here are sliding and don't even know it. You're already walking away, but you're unaware of that reality. Others are painfully aware of their distance from the Lord. They just don't know how to turn it around. It's just a little too slippery on this slope. And for all of us, there's a message today. The Lord begins by directing attention to a recent sad portrait of backsliding, and that is, again, backsliding Israel. What had happened to Israel is still having a ripple effect, well, I would say even to today. But the ripple effect down through the generations across a century would still have been keenly felt by the people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Let's take a look at this, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she's done all these things, she'll return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Father now says to Judah, Look at your sister. (laughs) Consider your sister backsliding Israel. 
if you would learn anything in this generation, and this is during the generation when Josiah was king, if you would learn anything right now, look at your sister backsliding Israel and think about what happened to them. They went up and they worshipped in the high places, verse 6 talks about. And the green trees. And we've talked about many times how the high places were the places of pagan worship. Green trees would be groves of trees that would be have a, a flat or open area in the middle, a hidden area where people could go off and practice pagan idolatry. And he also uses the word at the end of verse 6, she was a harlot there. Why? Because sexual immorality and idolatry went hand in hand. You didn't just go to a pagan temple. You went to a pagan temple prostitute to go into the pagan temple. That was part of the deal. And that, by the way, is what I think continued to lure a lot of the Israelite men out to these high places. It wasn't just worship, it was sex. And it was immorality. And these things got a hook into these people, and so they went off to these places. In First and Second Kings, God referred to this idolatry as the sin of Jeroboam. And you may recall... King David establishes Israel stronger and greater than it had ever been. Solomon, his son, follows him. It's a time of great peace, the glory days of the kingdom. But after Solomon dies, Rehoboam splits the kingdom. He heavy-handedly puts taxes on the people, more than they can bear. And so the ten northern tribes say, we're out of here. And they follow Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam is an idolater. (laughs) Par excellence, if I can put it that way. And he got the people involved in golden calf worship, brought back the golden calf, set one up down in the south part of the northern kingdom in Bethel, set one up in Dan, up in the northern part, so the people could go to either one. And in between, groves of idol worship and high places all over the place. Northern Israel was as idolatrous as it gets. But remember, this message comes during the time of King Josiah. Josiah is the reformer. Josiah is the one who took down the high places. Josiah is the one who cleared it all out in southern Judah to set the people's heart right. Josiah is called after his father David. In other words, Josiah was a man after God's own heart. And during this reign of Josiah, it had been a century since Israel had been destroyed. Backsliding Israel had been crushed, captured, and carted off by Assyria. And so the Lord says now to southern Judah... You watched it happen. I want you to look back a century. Look at Israel. Consider backsliding Israel. Look at what happened to her. Think about this. Judah, you watched this with your own eyes. And then he says in verse 8, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear But she went, and she was a harlot also. The Lord is amazed. You had the example of your northern sister doing this. The example of your northern sister wiped off the map, drawn into captivity, ruined by it. And now, treacherous younger sister, you're doing the same thing. The word treacherous, you might want to note, is begad in the Hebrew And it's deceitfulness, but it's deceitfulness linked to adultery. 
It's adulterous deceitfulness. It's a woman deceiving her husband and having an affair. A husband deceiving his wife and going off with another woman. That's the appropriate use of this word treachery. Adulterous, treacherous Judah who's trying to play games here. Watch this verse 9. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Today we call that environmentalism. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> what does it mean in verse 9, the lightness of her harlotry? Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land. What does that mean? The Hebrew word there, and I know I'm giving you a bunch of Hebrew words quickly here. You might want to jot this down. Is kol, Q-O-L, kol. And it's only used once in the entire Bible, and that's right here. The lightness of her idolatry, what does that mean? It's frivolity. Frivolousness. Judah is Holly Golightly. For those of you who remember the old story, Holly Golightly, careless, thoughtless, even flippant about the adultery. Flippant about her treachery. And this is a big warning sign. It's a road sign, if you will. I'm going to give you a few this morning. A road sign that perhaps you are exiting into backsliding. Perhaps you are beginning to U-turn in the wrong direction. The warning sign is, listen to this, a frivolous faith. A frivolous faith. Let me describe a frivolous faith. It is the faith of those who are happy to snack on the Scriptures. It's the faith of those who pray passively. The faith of those who, oh, they groove to rock and worship. You know, they love a good show on Sunday morning when there's not a game on. They love to go to Christian concerts. They love to get pumped up by that stuff. And and I fear that the 21st century church is often geared to this kind of mentality. It it began really as, as a desire to reach out to people who perhaps didn't know the Lord, to try and be relevant in our society. And yet the church has become frivolous in many ways. Light in our approach. And the problem with a frivolous faith is it lacks something that is absolutely critical to a passionate faith. What is that? It is the fear of the Lord. A frivolous faith doesn't fear the Lord. Someone who's just showing up for the half hour, you know, the hour long Sunday morning worship, the 20 minute sermon, the homily, the person who stays home because they'd rather just read the five-minute devotional book and be off on their way. Oh, they believe in Jesus. But it's frivolous. There is no fear of the Lord there. Listen to this. Jeremiah 2.19, in the previous chapter, note the wording of the Lord. He says, Know know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you. Now just for a moment this morning, I want to think about that very seriously. The dread of the Lord. Do you dread the Lord from time to time? I don't like to think that way, honestly. I want to be happy in the Lord and I want to be joyful in the Lord and I want to celebrate in the Lord and I do. But the dread of the Lord. Pausing for a split second in your life to say... He really is God. He really is all-powerful. He really could snuff me out with a blink of the eye. 
And if not for the proof of His love in Jesus Christ, I don't know that I could do anything but dread Him in all of His greatness, in all of His might and power. This whole light-hearted approach, the frivolous faith, this is Judah's worst problem. It's like saying, what's God going to do to us? Really? What's He going to do? And what's He ever really done? It's not so different from today. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, many of you are familiar with this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Really? What's God going to do? Right? What's He going to do to me? And the Lord says, the dread of me is not in you. You no longer fear me. Your faith has become frivolous. Gang, we might not outwardly join the mockers. But when we discount the fear of the Lord for flippant, frivolous faith, we are in the same boat. We are mocking the very faith that we claim to have. If we just view it as a cast-off thing, as a social thing, frivolous faith. Frivolity is an exit ramp on Route 66. Second sign of backsliding. Second sign is a deceptive devotion. Frivolous faith, deceptive devotion. Verse 10. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. Verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. A deceptive devotion. At least faithless Israel was up front with their idolatry, God says. At least they were cold, I mean really cold to me. At least they were decisive. They didn't play games. They embraced their idolatry. They sinned boldly. (laughs) And you know, I think the Father would say that to you and to me today. If you're going to sin, if you're going to rebel, man, do it brazenly. Flaunt it. If you want to choose sin over a relationship with Jesus, go for it big time. Don't play the game. Judah is playing a treacherous game here. Judah is returning to the Lord in the days of Josiah, but deceptively. This gives us insight to the revival that we all believed was going on in Josiah's years. There was some revival in Israel. It was the last revival that Judah would experience. But my friends, according to what the Lord is saying in Jeremiah, for a large majority of the people, it was a false revival. They were going back to temple, but they were leaving their hearts somewhere else. Like the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus has no taste for lukewarm followers. Frivolous faith, deceptive devotion. Ironside says lukewarmness in divine things is treachery against Christ. So someone says, how do you feel about your whole Christian walk? And if your answer is, eh, yeah, it is what it is. If your answer is trite, uh, frivolous, if your showing up is 
deceptive because your heart is not there, don't miss this. This message comes during the restoration of Josiah. People are going to church. The high places are torn down. The idolatry, that's not happening now. People are back to business with the Lord. They're celebrating Sabbath. They're they're going down for Passover. Josiah is reinstituting the major feasts of Israel and the people are showing up. They're doing that deceptively, treacherously. God says you're here. You've left your heart in San Francisco. <laughs> Let me ask you all, what gets your blood pumping? What really gets you going? And where's your heart right now? Does the soon return of Jesus, does the imminence of His coming kingdom, does that increase your heart rate? Does that get you... I mean, is that more than anything else the longing of your heart? Or is there something else that drives you? And for some, I would ask the question, did you even bring your heart this morning? Why would anyone come to church without their heart? Because conviction cuts the heart. And sometimes it's easier to go to church and leave my heart at home. Because if I bring my heart, I might be convicted. And I don't want to be convicted. Can I just tell you all honestly, as a pastor, and as a traveler on Route 66, I don't like conviction, personally. I don't like to be called to the carpet. I don't like to recognize the sin in my life. I don't like to hear about things that I'm doing that are inappropriate or not aligned with the Lord. I don't like to be guilty. I don't like to be cut to the heart. Problem is, the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so the way some people deal with this is they leave their heart at home. They come in, they sit down, and they shut off the emotion. They let the pastor rail and rant for a little while. They listen to the music, take the juice and the bread, and head out of here, and their heart is not affected. I invite you, especially as we study through Jeremiah, to walk through that door heart in hand, ready to have your heart pierced. And what pierces your heart may not pierce somebody else's heart, and what gets somebody else may not affect you. But we are invited by our tender and loving Father to come openly before Him with hearts ready, if needed, for surgery and for change, for circumcision, for being dealt with. If repentance or returning to the Lord, as Judah was doing, returning to the Lord, if it's an outward show, the problem is you're not fooling God at all but you're fooling yourself. And I know that well because I've done it. Devotion to God, a deceptive devotion, is deceptive to the devotee themselves. So how does God respond to all this? He's already wiped out northern Israel and their rebellion, and now He's looking at Judah, and He's saying, treacherous Judah, not only are you doing the same thing your sister did, but you're trying to lie about it. You're playing a game of pretense with me. What would you do? What would I do as a dad? I tell you what, first thing I'd do is take away the Xbox. <laughs> the TV would go next, and the privileges would go after that, and one thing after another, I would just start taking away, and 
parents, don't you know, sometimes it's difficult to separate out your anger for your stupid kids doing the things they do. You might say, well, my kids aren't stupid. You don't know your kids. I'm just kidding. But as a dad, isn't it hard to pull back the emotion? Don't you just... Sometimes... You want the punishment? Really? you you got to see tears or you know you really didn't get through, right? You want to get after them for what they're doing and you're personally offended that they would do this to you. And if I was God looking at Judah, I'd be like, they're done. They are so out of here. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the map. See if there's somebody down in Egypt who might want to have a relationship with me because they're obviously not into this. And God offers, number three, an outrageous offer. For all of this, verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. (laughs) These words are proclaimed to the north. That isn't there anymore. A hundred years earlier, taken into captivity, carted off, crushed by Assyria. And God says, Jeremiah, turn this message to the north. Because I'm speaking to my people, faithless Israel. Proclaim it to them. And I say, if I was Jeremiah, but they're gone. And the Lord would say, ain't over till I say it's over. Look at verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. And of course the cynic would say, I knew it! I knew it! See, see, I know what's going on in God's heart. Yeah, he says, return to me, but then, but then he says, yeah, but then you've got to come and, and, and you've got to grovel. Only acknowledge your iniquity. you got to come crawling. I'll take you back, but you better come looking pretty pathetic if you want me to take you back. And there are a lot of people who view God that way. They hear the word repentance and they think it means crawling and groveling. I gotta come back, you know, slink into church, and I gotta put dust on my head, and I gotta just be pathetic. And the natural man views repentance that way. But repentance, gang, as far as God is concerned, is not about causing us to cower. It is not about handing out humility. God's not sitting on his throne saying, I want you to repent and feel really bad. And then I'll feel a little better about taking you back. You know what the truth is? Repentance is not about God's heart at all. It's about ours. We don't repent so it makes God feel better. We repent because of what it does in our hearts as we come to Him. God knows this. If we don't repent, we don't return. It's deceptive. We're fooling ourselves. If we don't confess our sin nature... That we are number six, never getting to seven. That we are sinful humanity. We don't confess our sin nature and acknowledge our need for Him. We're still fooling ourselves with deceptive devotion. Well, I go to church. I sing all the songs. I bow in prayer. Yeah. Yeah, But where's your heart? Repentance is such a key in our lives. And believers in Jesus, you know what I mean. When you repent, you hand it over. 
When you acknowledge you've blown it, something shifts in your own heart. And when you truly repent to God, when you come open handed and say, Yes, Lord, I blew it. I failed. I'm faithless. Listen to the result. Peter says, Acts 3.19, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Where do the times of refreshing come from? The presence of the Lord. This is what God is ready to pour out. Refreshment. Not heavy-handed guilt. Refreshment. And, note this, Peter says, not only will times of refreshing come, but he says, repent and return so that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restorations of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient times. Not only is repentance, and this caught my eye this week, not only is it about immediate refreshment from the stagnancy of sin, But God's outrageously gracious offer is as big as the future. Repentance brings refreshment right now, but repentance brings restoration in the very near future. Look at verse 14. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And this is the stunning offer to Judah and Israel. By the way, faithless Israel is mentioned in verse 12. The faithless sons in verse 14 is Judah. So God is talking now to all of His people. Repent, and I will bring you to Zion. Do you get it? Do you know what He's talking about here? He says, Judah and Israel together again in Zion. He's talking about the promised kingdom, gang. This is a promise of the coming millennial kingdom. Acts 3.21 calls it the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from the ancient time. And I'll tell you something, I don't know how you can study the Old Testament scriptures and not believe in the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. I don't know how you can study the Old Testament prophets and not believe in the literal fulfillment of God's promise to Israel that He will rule and reign from the earth. But if you're not sure about that, check this out. Repentance brings refreshment now and restoration then. And listen to how Jeremiah describes it, verse 15. Then I will give you shepherds or pastors after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increase in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not come to mind. Nor will they remember it. Nor will they miss it. Nor will it ever be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers as an inheritance." And then I said, how would I set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations? And I said, you shall call me Father and not turn away from following me. Israel wiped out because they rebelled and sinned. 
Judah is treacherous in their false, deceptive devotion to God. Frivolous in their faith. And the Lord looks at them and He says, Listen up! I'm going to give you a kingdom. That's grace. That's grace. Only return to Me. And I will give a kingdom to you. A literal coming thousand year reign. By the way, this is the last mention of the Ark of the Covenant in the Hebrew Scriptures, verse 16. Last time it's going to be mentioned here. In the reign of Josiah, still present in the Temple of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, holding the tablets and Aaron's rod that budded in a jar of the manna from the travels in the wilderness, still there. Above the Ark of the Covenant was the what? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Whatever happened to the ark? As God saying in those days, you're never, you're not going to say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. You're not going to look for or look to the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Won't even come to mind. Won't even matter. Won't even be an issue. And some have asked the question, what happened to the ark? Where's the ark of the covenant? I've wondered that myself. I think I've preached about it. Where's the ark? Was it destroyed by Babylon in 586? Perhaps. Probably not. There's an old, uh, probably invalid tradition that says Jeremiah himself took the ark, got it out of there, went to Ireland and hid it in a cave. (laughs) And did a little river dance. I'm not sure what that's about there. And you can go to Ireland and, and apparently visit the cave where they believe the ark is still hidden deep in this, you know, whatever. Perhaps, I think it's more likely that Indiana Jones found it in Tannis. Others claim that the Ark of the Covenant is in a chamber today beneath the Temple Mount. Chambers that Solomon had dug out beneath the original temple, and perhaps the Ark is down there. A couple of rabbis claim they actually saw what they thought was the Ark as they dug under there before they got found out. And before that door got sealed. In fact, if you go to Israel, we walk along what's called the Rabbi's Tunnel underneath the Temple Mount. It's very cool. And as you walk there, there is a place there on that walk where there's a door or a wall sealed up and cemented over. And that's the place that these two rabbis cut in and went underneath and believe they saw the actual Ark of the Covenant. Rick, what do you think? Is that where the lost Ark is? And my answer is, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Because God's saying it's not going to matter in the future. The whole point of the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it is that it would sit in the middle of the Israelites. You all know in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle to begin with. And then in the most holy place in the temple later, the Ark of the Covenant was simply a representation of the throne of God on earth. The mercy seat. A representation of the throne. I will meet you there. The Lord descending to that throne to grant mercy to Israel. The mercy seat. There I will meet with you, Exodus 25-22. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. But what is being said here through the prophet Jeremiah is God is guaranteeing an actual literal day when the house of Judah and the house of Israel are restored. A day when all the nations of the earth are gathered up to Jerusalem in a positive way. When Jerusalem itself, not the ark, but Jerusalem the city, will be the throne of the Lord. 
And so the ark becomes completely irrelevant. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach Himself, will literally rule and reign over all the earth in that time of the Millennial Kingdom from Jerusalem. Ezekiel 43, verse 7. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Well, that's just a metaphor, okay? Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. That's eh, just allegorical. Okay, Joel chapter 3 verse 17. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Well, Rick, you got to spiritualize that. Zion and my holy mountain. It was not spiritualized to the Hebrews that he spoke to. When God talked about Zion, they knew it was Jerusalem. When God talked about Jerusalem, they didn't think of some vague heavenly kingdom. They thought about Jerusalem on the earth. They're among the mountains of Israel. I still think it's a metaphor. Okay, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And I was taught by some growing up that we are in the thousand year reign right now. And I would always say, but it's been 2,000 years. And they would always say, Exactly. It's metaphorical. And I'll tell you what, gang, once you begin to point at Scripture as metaphorical, you can make it say whatever you want. Why should we believe anything as hard and fast in the Scriptures if we can make it all allegory? I can pull out some weird ideas if we get away from the literal understanding of Scripture. But I'll tell you what Jeremiah says in chapter 33, verse 16. He says, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. Again and again and again, God promised a kingdom of the line of David, the genealogical, flesh, physical line of David. He promised a king would come. You understand that to be Jesus, right? But there are those who, after Jesus, take the next step and say, yeah, but Jesus is just going to rule and reign as king. He already is king. He's already ruling and reigning. We're in the kingdom right now, even though Revelation 20 says Satan would be bound during that kingdom reign. And I always like to ask the question, is Satan bound right now? Seems pretty loose to me. And as a matter of fact, Peter declares so. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Satan is not bound. We are not in the millennial reign at this present moment. But that rain is coming. Well, why do you believe that rain is going to be literal? Because God promised it to His people. And because unlike us, God is faithful to every one of His promises. This outrageous offer is all the more outrageous because repentance brings us immediate refreshment. But also the absolute promise of eternal restoration. Note this verse 14, he makes this comment. I will take you one from a city and two from a family. What does that mean? It means little by little, person by person, faith by faith, God is preparing a kingdom. 
God's business plan is very different than man's. God is not about hype. He is not about movements. He is about hearts. He is about individual people. God would speak this morning, you know what, regardless, if ten people showed up this morning, the Lord would be working His kingdom. If one person came through the door, the Lord would deal with one person's heart because that's how God works. He doesn't need masses to turn out to to get His point across. He just goes straight to the heart of the individual. He calls for repentance one by one by one. So I will take one from a city. I'll take two from a family. I'll take anyone who will repent and return to me. We get excited on Route 66. We get excited by big turnouts. That's what pumps us up. And even in this place, and I confess it, you know, Sunday mornings where we are packed out both hours, we all go home feeling just a little bit better about what's going on. And it doesn't matter in the least to the Father how many people in terms of big numbers. It's the individual. He is impressed by one heart turning to Him. Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. You can pack out and have a great conference in Seattle filled with Christians to the brim. And at a tiny little church in Des Moines, God can change one heart and heaven busts loose over that. Luke 15, verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What are you getting at, Rick? I'm just telling you one thing you need to understand. If you are here this morning and you feel like you're in that place of backsliding, and you're not even sure you should have come in the door at all, you are more important than the entire group of Christians in this whole area right now to the Lord. A person on the verge of repentance, a person on the verge of coming to the Lord, matters more to Him than any of our movements ever have. Because He's all about the heart. Are you that sinner this morning? Are you the one holding the rest of us up? (laughs) Repent and return so that times of refreshing may come and the restoration of Jesus may come. Because I've said this before, there's one person out there who is the last person who's going to cry out in repentance to Jesus and be saved before the church is caught up. And I don't know who it is. But if I could talk to him right now, I'd just say, please, please, make it today. Because we're all waiting on you. Which is not the reason, obviously, to repent. Repent so refreshing can come to your heart. It's the call of God today. Verse 20, continuing on, he says, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. And anytime he says house of Israel, he's talking about Judah and Israel, all of his people. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplication of the sons of Israel. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Verse 22, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. That's God's outrageous offer to a treacherous people with a frivolous faith and deceptive devotion. And they respond to Him. Behold, we come to you. For you are the Lord our God. 
Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. They're recognizing their sin here. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Man, the excitement's building. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Some believe that this is a prophecy of the future voice of repentant Israel. And you know, a remnant of Israel is going to repent. Absolutely. Like Romans 11.25, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob. We've talked about that before, but but quickly, Zechariah 13 says, I'm going to bring a third of you through the fire. I believe the indication is a third of Israel is going to survive the tribulation. They will come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that is, at the end of the tribulation, that's going to be all Israel. All Israel that's left. And every person, man, woman, and child, will have faith in Jesus in that moment and at that time. However, there is a very disturbing but in verse 24. He says, they say, the people say, but the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers. In verse 25, they say, let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us. And what I believe we hear in this response is what I called on Wednesday night the most dangerous thing about backsliding. Please hear me. The most dangerous thing about a backsliding faith is what I call the fatal flaw of futility. The fatal flaw of futility. Here in this Response to the Lord's outrageous grace, His amazing gift of forgiveness and promise of restoration, in response, the people are futile. They're hopeless. They're done for. Surely the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, but the shameful thing is too much. But we're going to lie down in our shame, let our humiliation just cover over us. They're done. They're too far gone. They are not savable. How do you answer someone like that? What do you say to someone who says, I am too sinful. There is no road back for me. Don't waste your time. What would you say? I think I'd read in verse 22. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. By the way, it's not just six times that word is used in this chapter. It's seven. Six times the word faithless or backsliding is applied directly to the people. The seventh time is where God says, I will heal your faithlessness. I will heal your faithlessness. And verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, If you will declare, if you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. See, and that's the deal. 
The backslider who feels hopeless and futile and like I'm too far gone, God says, it's not about you. It's not about how bad you've sinned. It's not about how long you've been away. It's simply about turning around. It's not about coming to your senses even. It's about coming to me. Return to me. And I believe he asked one thing of the backslider. And that is a U-turn on Route 66. Stop driving down the highway of your humanity. Pause for a moment. Turn around. Repent. And recognize that you need Him. And He will heal your backsliding. Father, we are the faithless ones. God, I am overwhelmed by Your grace. Because we recognize that our faith from time to time is very frivolous. And we recognize, Lord, that our devotion is deceptive, especially in those moments, those times. We show up, but our heads are somewhere else. Our hearts are elsewhere. God, there are so many things. Satan has just done a number on this culture and on this world. He's given us so much to look at and be involved in. So many distractions. So many deceptions. So many lies. And Lord, I'm asking this morning, would you lift the lies off of this place? Would you save us from our own self-deception? Would you look at our hearts, Father? Search them and try them and see if there is any way in us. Father, I pray over the fellowship that if there's anyone who has been backsliding even this week, even the past few days, that we would pause and repent and turn to you. And if that's you, I'm not asking you just to stay where you are. I'm not asking you to put your hand over your heart or to pray where you stand. I'm asking you to make a physical move out of your seat and to the Lord. Father, forgive us our backsliding. Forgive us our faithlessness. Strengthen, Lord Jesus, our resolve to stand for You and to walk with You and to be Your people. Father, may we put away all treachery. May the dread of God fill us even as the grace of our Lord consumes us. And may we stand firm and strong for You in Your strength, Father, and in the might and the power of Your Spirit in these last days. I pray, Father, You will draw out passionate prayers in this church. I ask, Lord, that You will make us voracious students of the Scriptures with an appetite that just is huge, Father, for the things of Your Word. I pray our worship, Father, will be from the heart and not from the instruments on the stage. I'm asking You to do a work in and among us, Lord, as a church fellowship that is so mighty, so beyond ourselves, so much greater than the works of man. That one from a city, two from a family, 
would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray for salvation. And we pray for the day when we will see the might of Your kingdom among all those whom You have quietly saved one person at a time. Bless Your people, Father. Draw the lost and may we be used by You, we pray in Jesus' name.